Welcome back to the Marion Flaxman Network Podcast, a podcast dedicated to reintroducing personal narratives into critical public health topics. On today's episode, my conversation with Sid Sharma. Sid is one of the three owners of Wild Bay Kombucha, a Baltimore, Maryland-based kombucha company that began as three friends brewing kombucha together in the back room of a juice bar. Today, they are regionally distributed and beloved, and you can find them in stores such as Whole Foods and Giant. My favorite flavor is the elderberry. Sid was the perfect person to have on this podcast because he really exemplifies the winding path to success. After studying environmental policy and management and becoming an energy analyst, he is now the owner of a kombucha company who's passionate about using his business to promote environmental well-being as well as consumer health. This conversation touches many critical topics to public health, so please sit back and enjoy my conversation with Sid Sharma. So, Sid, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It is so my pleasure. I'm so excited to have you. We have been, you know, off and on, friends, colleagues throughout the years. I think the last time I saw you in person was at Expo East. That sounds correct to me. There was some soup involved. Yes, there was soup. There was kombucha. A veritable picnic. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. And a totally good time. That was the Expo East. I don't know if you recall this, but Katy Perry was there. Yes. Um... Something with apple cider vinegar. Yes. She was repping Bragg's apple cider vinegar, and there was this whole hoopla because everyone was running down this one corridor. And I was like, what's going on? But it was because Katy Perry was doing apple cider vinegar shots. Amazing. What an exciting moment in time. (laughs) Who wants to miss that? Certainly not me. So I want to start. I want to zoom out a little bit. Um, because one of my favorite topics when it comes to the intersection of health and life and entrepreneurship is the winding path. A lot of people that have found their passion and their business have walked a sort of nonlinear path that they maybe didn't expect. So I'd love you to take me back to young Sid, maybe kid Sid or high school Sid. What did you think you wanted to study and be when you grew up? Truthfully, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So like a lot of kids, I think I just leaned into what came easy to me or what was familiar. Uh, So both my parents are doctors. So I was like, you know what? I'll become a doctor. That doesn't seem like it takes a long time or anything. (laughs) So I studied biochemistry and ended up minoring in Spanish and environmental studies, which I think shows you that I had no idea what I wanted to do. I was trying to throw as much in there as possible to really learn what I enjoyed. So during that time, I was also doing some research in labs, things like that. Quickly realized that was not where my heart was, and I'm much more of a people person. That's so cool, actually. I did not know that your parents are both doctors. So as a quick pivot, like, are they hip to the health benefits of kombucha? Are they open to that as doctors? Definitely. I think one thing that drives that is that I'm first generation American. Both my parents are from India. And Western medicine is very different than Eastern medicine, right? Like we're very reactive, like there's the problem, here's the fix versus, you know, Eastern medicine is much more proactive, much more about healing the body when you're healthy to maintain it later. Yeah, I definitely see that, that Eastern medicine tends to have more of a prevention focus. So I'm guessing your parents are practicing allopathic Western medicine, but do they bring to it a more prevention-focused lens? Absolutely. I mean, they will tell their patients to do yoga, move the body, you know, try to consume more fresh foods rather than the preservative-rich foods we often have. Oh, that's so awesome. Okay, cool. Well, um, you know, I was thinking about that studying like pre-med, environmental science, and Spanish, you were almost perfectly set up to like join the Peace Corps and go do global health work. So you ended up going in the direction of environmental science and energy science. Is that right? Uh, That is correct. I studied environmental management. Okay, cool. And what, what led you to that? I really enjoyed the environmental classes I took. Um, I've always been interested in macroeconomics, larger scale issues, and how approaching them in small sequential steps can help solve these issues. And climate change, environmental issues are at the forefront of of news and media, especially at that time and now. Uh, So I just found myself really pulled towards that. 
Awesome. Cool. Yeah. And what did you like about working in uh, energy analysis and, and that kind of realm? I really enjoyed that it is that nexus between business and science. You're solving an issue that is economically favorable as well as environmentally favorable. And I really think that's where the solutions lie, right? Because, you know, changing a capitalist's mentality about what they care about, very difficult. But helping them optimize for environmental friendliness while saving them a couple cents, you know, much more possible. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that hopefully in the next five years, we'll see that shift with both sustainable agriculture and prevention-based nutrition because there is so much money being spent on agrochemicals and repairing the damage done by agrochemicals and on diet-related disease that if we can see that as a spending problem that could be solved by a little bit of upfront spending to prevent the downstream spending, then fingers crossed, <laughs> we can begin to approach things through this like, hey, let me save you money later by fixing the problem ahead of time. And I, I think so much of that is tied back to the subsidies on corn and us not focusing on as nutrient-rich agriculture. Yeah. And that subsidy led to high fructose corn syrup, which led to more and more processed foods. But I do think our generation is pushing back and asking for organic, asking for locally grown, asking for better practices. Yeah. Shout out to millennials for craving kale salad. You know, yeah. we're just like, give us the kale salad and avocado toast. We love it. We want real food. But, you know, it really is like this is a huge topic, obviously, and we could wander forever off into it. And I will later come back to it to kind of get your thoughts as a business owner in a sort of healthy food business. But the way that we subsidize foods with tax dollars, which then cause disease, which then go on to the taxpayer's <laughs> checkbook as well to pay for the health care that needs to resolve that disease, it's very like, what are we doing here? We're spending twice when we could just shift our spending and prevent a lot of the downstream impacts. So curious to get more of your thoughts on that later as a small business owner. Um, but I also am curious to hear, when did you first learn about kombucha? I was introduced to kombucha actually by my co-founder's parents. So me, Sergio, and Adam have all known each other since we were 14 years old. Adam and Sergio are brothers. So oh. their parents were making kombucha in their house when we were in ninth grade. So to date myself, that's about 2004, 2005. And they had been making it for several years at that point. And Sergio pulled it down from the top of the refrigerator and poured me a glass of it and I was shocked and intrigued and everything that comes with trying kombucha for the first time. <laughs> yes, that magical first moment where you either love it, hate it, or are just kind of confused and interested to learn more. And of course, it depends. So it depends on the kind of kombucha you have the first time. So I'm guessing that his parents were making a relatively palatable brew. I assume you weren't smacked across the face with just a straight vinegar flavor. Oh, their kombucha was very traditional, absolute smack across the face, <laughs> you know, shocking, shocking flavor moment for yeah. me that I still remember. Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay. So that's awesome. So then you had that shocking moment and yet, you know, eight, 10 years later, you guys are like, let's brew our own in, I believe, the back room of a juice shop. Like, walk me through that journey. <laughs> So their parents ended up moving out of the country and left all of that brewing equipment with Adam. Oh. And Adam pulled that equipment out, you know, partially due to nostalgia, partially intrigue. And if I'm going to hold on to this equipment, I might as well use it. And took that family recipe, really made it his own and was was working the farmer's market circuit slightly, mostly selling to Johns Hopkins students, friends and family in Baltimore. So Sergio ended up moving in with Adam after college, and so he got roped into it. And then I was studying uh, in grad school environmental management and entrepreneurship, and Sergio calls me. I still remember being in my, my driveway in North Carolina and ropes me into it, asked me if I want to be a part of it. I said, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going to end up after grad school. 
um, fate would have me ending up back in Maryland. And like, like you said, we rented the side room of that juice shop in Hamden and took it from there. That's awesome. So the first few years, um, pretty small scale, like you say, farmers markets. Um, and then you ended up getting a, a warehouse, right? And kind of just going for it, building out big. So February 2015, we launched in that side room of the juice shop. We grew gradually until we took over the whole juice shop. So that took about 12 months. In March of 2016, we moved in our own space. And that was in Timonium. That was about 3,400 square feet. And do you still are you still in that space at all, or have you now moved to an even larger space? We've moved to a larger space since. So we signed a five-year lease there, outgrew it in two and a half, and ended up moving in our current space, which is uh, 13,000 square feet. Nice, nice. And for those who don't know, kombucha does grow exponentially on its own. So it's good that you guys kept up with that, because for every brew, it's, it's doubling its potential. So you can really just keep growing endlessly as long as you're willing to keep up with the mother. <laughs> Exactly. We're, we're just along for the ride. It's all about the self-propagation. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, my gosh. So speaking of which, I think I take for granted a little bit the fact I'm a kombucha head, you're a kombucha head. For those who maybe are new to kombucha or have had it, you know, from Whole Foods or at this point, the gas station one or two times, but don't know all about it, can you give us a little bit of the story of how kombucha is made? So it's actually a pretty simple process. We make tea just like you would on a stove at home, and then we add a SCOBY to it, which is a symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast that ferments this tea. And at the end of that point, we add different organic juices or herbs and spices to create the different flavors. It's then bottled and ready to be consumed. So, you know, it's about a three to four week process to make our kombucha and... It's great for replenishing that good bacteria in your gut, um, has a lot of healthy acids. It's just really a more fun way to consume those probiotics. A hundred percent. And we do have some right here. Yeah. By the way, this is my father's favorite flavor, the <laughs> nice. elderberry wild bay. He's a big kombucha guy because I've been feeding it to him. I brew my own as well. Yeah. But whenever I see this one, I pick it up for him because he's like absolutely obsessed or whenever he has a cold or anything. Yeah. Shout out to Papa Flax. <laughs> Shout out to Papa Flax. He loves the Wild Bay elderberry. Also, you guys recently or maybe a couple years ago, you were wild yes. kombucha and now you're wild bay. Yep. Just to kind of give a little extra nod to the bay. Yeah. So it was a combination of things. We had been thinking about it for a while that wild felt a little bit generic, mm. didn't really tie us to the region. Mm -hmm. And then at that time, there was also another brand that wanted to challenge our trademark. Right. And we held the trademark, but we were advised that they would drag us through court to see how much they could get us to spend, mm -hmm. despite the fact that we'd win. So we ended up settling and making the change we had planned anyway. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. I like it. And I mean, it's still, obviously the bottle still looks familiar. So if you yeah. were a fan of the Wild brand, you'll still recognize this. And does it still have the cute little bunny? It does. The cap? Look right on the cap. Oh, oh there. Oh, yes. Yeah. probably it... can't see, but this is a very sweet little bunny. And then when you open it inside the cap, there's like a little... Like a, a little pun, a little yep. bunny pun. A rabbit-related pun or something about the bay. Yes, I love that. I love that. Okay, so part of the reason that I wanted you to kind of give the listeners the primer into how kombucha is made is because one of the things that I'm very passionate about, um, my own bias, is that when we look at these live cultured foods like kombucha and other ferments, what we see is this symbiotic cooperative colony culture there's a community right the bacteria and the yeasts are working together and they produce acids and a trace amount of alcohol which helps to keep the brew healthy so a lot of people you know worry oh if i'm brewing my own is it going to mold well if you have the right temperature and the right amount of acids being produced it will not it's going to be self-preserving and i think that we can learn a lot from how these microorganisms cooperate and work with each other and also how it's kind of this constant dance. Like when I'm brewing, um, sometimes I'll use a little bit more green tea 
one week to boost some of the bacteria content. And mm-hmm. then I'll switch to a heavier black tea blend to boost up some of the yeasts. And I'll just kind of dance back and forth and see how it feels. And it's really sort of like a metaphor for everything in life. Like we have to stay flexible and always be sort of open to nudging our environments in one direction or another and then adapting to it. So I would love to hear um, your business. You're not only selling kombucha, which is this beautiful sort of communal beverage, but I also, I've been following your brand for years and I know that community is really important, not just because it was founded by friends who came from a similar community, but also because you're very focused on giving back to the community and rooting yourselves in the community close to where you grew up. So can you speak to that a little bit? Like why is community so important to you? There's a few different reasons, right? So right on the bottle, we have the Chesapeake Bay Foundation's logo. We donate 1% of all sales. And I want to highlight that that's 1% of sales. Yeah, that's big. Not profits, because profits can be manipulated by a mm-hmm. business. Your sales or income really can't. Right. So in a given year, we're, we're donating a pretty significant amount to them. And we chose that path because no matter how you cut it, consumer goods is a you're consuming. And we're utilizing materials like glass, labels, boxes, caps, and all of these things do take a toll on the environment. And we wanted to make sure that it's in our ethos to offset that as much as possible. Yeah, 100%. Pivoting off of that, obviously, I love glass and your bottles are beautiful. Um, how did you make the decision to go glass versus plastic? Because, of course, there are trade-offs, like plastic is lighter, et cetera. So what really drove you to stick with glass? The product itself. So because it's a living culture, it will actually leach plastic. So that's why you don't find kombucha in plastic. Mm. Uh, You'll either see it in the can format or the bottle format. Oh, that's true. You know, when I was at KCON a couple years ago, there were people there selling plastic, which in theory was supposed to be for kombucha. So uh, it leaches, guys. Watch out. (laughs) Now we know if you see kombucha in plastic, just turn around, hightail it. I do enjoy it in cans. Do you guys ever consider canning? We've, We've discussed it. And it is a great option, especially for kombucha companies that are trying to ship across the country and things like that. We do love the visibility of glass, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're using organic, high-quality juices and spices to create the flavors. And the clear glass really allows you to see that beautiful color and what goes into it. Yeah. Although I would really love to, like, crack a can of your kombucha at, like, a ball game, you know? I'm just, like, picturing a a refreshing can in Camden Yards. Anyway. No, I I agree with you. Maybe someday. (laughs) Cans cans give you some great access, right? You're talking the gym. You're talking the beach. You're talking games like that. Yeah. So it's definitely something that we will do in the future. It's just the timeline hasn't been set. Yeah. Okay. And also, I'm... I'm not sure if this is the case, but my perception is that a lot of the brands that you find in cans are doing like the non-traditional processing or like the alcohol removing. So again, for those who aren't familiar, kombucha is a natural ferment. So it does contain trace amounts of alcohol that the ferment produces just as a preservative, not enough to get you drunk unless you're Lindsay Lohan circa 2005. But Some people are afraid of being hit with excise tax. So if your product happens to drift above, you know, 1%, in theory, the government can pull it and tax you. And a lot of companies now have invested lots of money in machinery that removes any amount of alcohol from their product. And I feel like it's those companies that I'm seeing in cans more so. Is there a relationship between that, like the less traditional product, like being more stable in a can because maybe something that's still alive could explode or is that not not the case so when a company is is stripping out the alcohol just due to the nature of that process you are stripping out other things as well right so it's very difficult to undergo that process and produce a kombucha with the same robustness the same quality yeah and like I said, when a product is in a can, you can't really see the product the same way. Right. Right. There's literal transparency to this bottle. <laughs> this is what it is. And this one especially is so beautiful. That elderberry color, it really gets me every time. Um, well, I think, as you know, but the listeners might not know, I worked for KBI 
doing some lobbying initiatives around the Kombucha Act, which I believe is still out there and live and trying to get passed. We got lots of good co-signers. Shout out to Jamie Raskin. He's my congressperson from Maryland, and he did co-sign our bill. Um, But it's just a bill that's trying to raise the allowable limit before a kombucha would get slapped with excise tax because the reality of a living product is that it's going to shift and change and drift up and drift down. And it's not dangerous. It's not really what you would consider alcoholic. I mean, I fed kombucha, including homebrew kombucha, to my babies. Like I think they've each started drinking kombucha when they were like three months old. So um, it's not an amount of alcohol that anyone would notice as alcohol per se, but it's just there to help kind of maintain the safety, actually, and integrity, like you're saying, of the beverage. I think the tricky part to it is as kombucha companies have tried to expand geographically, there's more and more hands touching your product. Right. And as we know, when kombucha gets to room temperature or warmer temperature, that's when it continues to ferment. That's really when that byproduct of alcohol is being produced. Yeah. So for us, really keeping it in this region has allowed us to have better control over the quality of the product and attributes like that. So that makes me want to ask maybe kind of a controversial question, you know, not trying to stir the pot or anything, but in my opinion, um, you know, kombucha, again, natural product, Um, probiotic product, the fact that it's alive and local is part of the appeal. Um, So in the industry, I think that it's really cool how many different regional producers there are. Like when I travel, I look for the local kombucha. I want to see what they're up to. I want to try a skew I've never had before. But of course, there are these sort of industry or kombucha in general leaders that are shipping across the country And I don't want to say are like violating anything, but they're kind of like taking over in a way that feels a little bit out of line with the spirit of the kombucha community. So talk to me a little bit, if you will, about your focus on regional growth as opposed to, say, world domination. I mean, I think those pioneering brands are important to the industry, right? Because those really large brands that are operating on very different budgets, they're also the people primarily educating the audience. Yeah. So I don't want to speak badly about those brands either because in a lot of ways, they laid the foundation for brands like us. That being said, I look at it in a very similar way as the craft beer industry, right? There's people that are going to innovate within the category and do super unique, exciting things And build that really loyal following. And it's also important to leave enough space in the industry that those types of makers can operate as well. Yeah. You know, I love what you said there because it is it highlights something that's not just true in the kombucha industry or in the industry in general, but kind of everywhere is like there's always this problem of growth versus balance. And you do sometimes need these leaders who are willing to grow so big that, frankly, at some point, it probably was very vulnerable for them. They did have to educate. I'm sure that when we look at the GTs, for example, there was probably a time that it was very uncomfortable, the rate at which they were growing, how much education, bottles exploding, having product pulled from the shelf, right, all those growing pains that allowed people like you to learn those lessons at a distance and maybe not have the same type of growing pain. So you're totally right. And this is true across, I think, every industry where you do need these larger brands. Um, But at the same time, if every single brand's goal is to be a global leader, then at some point things get a little bit uncomfortable and and we're jockeying for shelf space in, in the gas station, which is literally where you can now buy GT's kombucha. And by the way, I love GT's kombucha. I'm I've been a brand loyalist. I, I buy their product weekly and I have for like, I don't know, 20 years. Like it's crazy how long they've been around. But again, like there's something to be said for that balance. And same thing in craft beers, right? Like when I was a kid, my parents drank Fat Tire. And Fat Tire is like a San Francisco brand, I think. But we were in New Jersey and it's a craft beer, but it somehow hit it big. It was a early adapter. I, I think during that time frame in the 90s, like people weren't necessarily drinking craft beer the same way they do now. So someone had to lead the way and pave the path so that others could follow. But but now it's probably more fun to like grab a local beer that's made by a local craftsperson. And now Fat Tire is like a 
a global name. I mean, their facility is extremely impressive. I've been down there in Asheville, North Carolina. Oh, is that where they are? Yeah, they have a facility there. I'm not positive that's the only one, but I've I've spent some time there. It's a cool spot. That's awesome. And I I definitely agree that you need those consumers that are willing to take that risk early on and give your product a shot when it's not at that ideal point. It's not where it will be 10 years down the road. It's not where it will be probably even a year down the road. Right. And like similarly, okay, this is a little bit off topic, but because you're an energy analyst guy, there's this kind of um, common maybe misconception or just view in the world of um, changing, let's say, environmental and energy practices that if you take your investment money and you put it into like small businesses that are doing new and great things in green energy, that that's the best way to improve the world. But then others will say, well, actually, if you can convince BP to shift 30% of their practice over to green energy, you've made a much bigger difference in the world than if you supported the little guy, right? So again, like there's this trade-off, and I'm curious again to hear your thoughts. Like if someone is thinking, I want to make the world a better place, I want to save the environment, is the answer to really like shut out these big producers and try to just focus on changing things completely? Or is there something to be said for supporting the gradual shift of the big players who dominate the industry? I think you need the duality Mm -hmm. because you need the disruptors that are going to bring a product or service to market that's never been seen before and take that risk that these legacy brands might not. But on the other hand, you need these large movers to move because they own such a large percentage of these industries, such a large percentage of the consumption that's happening that if they make that change, it has the ripple effect, you know, across our country or across the world, depending on their scale. Yeah, I totally agree. Also, I identify as a disruptor. (laughs) So you need me, guys. See, I'm very needed. Okay, so... Back to kombucha. I am curious. Obviously, you like it. You're working in it. Um, Have you personally experienced any health benefits from it? Like, do you feel like drinking kombucha is a positive thing in your life? Definitely. I think it gives your whole your body a sense of regularity. I think it gives you um, some balance. I haven't really had any stomach issues or things like that. Um, And in general, I think it's just a great product. I just enjoy drinking it. And I'm not even just speaking to our brand. You know, similarly to you, when I travel, I'll get local kombucha because of the way it makes me feel. Yeah. 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 That's always fun. Although I struggle. Sometimes you find a brand that's just so sweet. You ever get that? You're traveling and you're like, oh, the local brew. And it's just like not fermented. (laughs) I I think that's also the nature of making kombucha also, right? It's, It's harder to make at home in a lot of ways than it is to make at a large scale. Mm-hmm. So as these brands are, are growing, they're going through those growing pains and learning how to, you know, make the product the right level of dry or sweet or right. carbonated, things like that. Right. Um, so talk to me a little bit about like being the boss, being the business owner. There has been controversy throughout our economy around how workers are treated and and cared for and whether or not, you know, companies can thrive but also maintain their humanity. So talk to me a little bit about what it's like running a business like this and and growing and, um, you know, like brewing kombucha in larger and larger vessels, like all of it. How has the experience been? It's been an incredible learning experience, I think. You know, you have the highest highs and the lowest lows, and we have an incredible team of people that make it possible. Um, At our scale, which isn't even that large, we wouldn't be able to do what we do with just the three of us. You know, you're reliant on the people around you, and I think it's important to treat them accordingly. You know, the operation doesn't function without these people, and you should treat them in a way that they know that. Yeah, especially when they're making kombucha, which is a very sensitive creature. I mean, I talk to my kombucha. Do you guys talk to yours? I mean, occasionally. (laughs) You know, like, good morning. How's it going? Because that mother culture, like, I don't know. I feel like if you don't talk to her kindly, she's a little creepy. She's like this big disc. I don't know what she's thinking. I just try to hedge my bets 
and I speak kindly to her and hope that between the positive energy going into the water and the cultures getting the vibration of my voice that it's helping to produce a healthier brew. You know, maybe there's no science behind it, maybe someday, but why not? Why not speak kindly to your kombucha? I mean, it is a product that takes a lot of care and it's not like other beverages, right? You aren't just mixing three things in water and you're done. Right. There's an entire process that room leaves room for error along the way. Yeah. And I assume at this point you guys like heavily temperature control where you're brewing because that's a big like wild card for home brewers is like in the winter it takes twice as long for a batch to ferment than it does in the summer. Yeah. We control the, the temperature and humidity of, of our fermentation. Room. Oh, wow. That's awesome. I wouldn't have thought about the humidity. Does the kombucha like it high or low? In terms of temperature? Uh, humidity. So you don't want excess water in mm, the air. Yeah. But you also don't want it to be so dry that- That it's evaporating yeah. out. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gosh. The more you know, the more you think about it. Yeah. And and speaking of, um, you know, you were saying like, there's just things that you couldn't do, just three of you. You have recently added to your business this beverage distribution aspect. So talk to me a little bit about that. I assume it grew out of a need that you were seeing that wasn't being filled. It was very much born out of just listening to our wholesale customers. Um, during the pandemic, a lot of these local businesses up and down the street were struggling to meet their minimums with other distributors in the area and started asking us if we could deliver the basics like water because we were already going there with our kombucha and our yerba mate and they couldn't even serve water to their customers coming for curbside pickup or entering the building. So we begrudgingly said yes to help them out. And then next thing you know, they're asking us for sparkling water and it's blossomed into this really cool business where we're able to support small businesses in our area while providing them with healthier options and more unique options. So we can get away from that uniformity where every cooler is, you know, Coke or Pepsi. Yeah, that's awesome. I Maybe I'm crazy, but I'm pretty sure that I bought your mate in a little cafe in upstate New York. Do you guys distribute as far away as that? So that is possible. Um, we do ship it through the mail to some locations that far that far away. Okay. Yeah, yeah so I possible. think I bought it at Main Street Market in Trumansburg, New York. I was I turned to the shelf and there was that like Icaro, right? Icaro yeah. mate, and I was like, oh my god, what is this doing here? <laughs> so I had to buy it, but I was I was like, I didn't realize they were this north. Yeah, we've had some moments like that too, where I'll be traveling somewhere you know, outside the region, and I'll be surprised by our products. So That's always fun. <laughs> um, so speaking of the products and, and the industry, um, it's really hard to both own a food business. I mean, that's just, you know, blanket statement, like period. You could just say that. Agreed. It's hard. And then add on top of that refrigerated and cold transport chain, huge. Um but it's especially hard to have a successful business that's selling a product that is beneficial for people's health. Because even in the natural food industry, what you end up seeing a lot of are products that are competing with these the worst of the worst ultra-processed foods. And for those of us who are gluten-free and have a kid with food allergies and have been you know, searching for alternative products for 18 years almost, it's very exciting that all of these different sort of better options exist that mm -hmm. are still ultra processed, but are like organic or, you know, whatever, corn syrup free, et cetera. But still, we're not deluding ourselves that they're health foods. And the ones that are obviously able to grow and sit on the shelves the most easily are the maybe the least nutritious. So it's a very exciting intersection when you both own and operate a natural food company, beverage company, and also it's good for people's health. So I just want to hear a little bit about that. Like, how does it feel to be operating in this space and to be thriving as a business, but also know that you're putting something healthy and nourishing into people's bodies and lives? It feels great. And I mean, from a macro standpoint, I've always thought that our grocery stores need to change, right? the amount of real estate allocated to fresh food that needs to be refrigerated or, or frozen versus the center store is not good enough. Yeah. And I think 
people can eat healthier if we do it as a society because you know in a capitalist society demand drives price so if as more and more people learn about the importance of eating fresh foods and the importance of eating products that are healthy for you not just marketed as healthy for you i think it'll really change the industry and and change people's health overall yeah and right now um i'm sure you're aware there's a big push for this movement of food as medicine or food is medicine depending mm -hmm. on how you phrase it um, and I'm now working on the policy side of it. And something that I've experienced over and over is I'm in a room full of um, policy experts. They're very passionate. They're very informed. They've worked in policy for a long time. And they're maybe even very informed about nutrition and health. But, you know, to get to that level in this side of the field, you probably haven't spent so much time like working in CPG or like working in grocery stores or working in restaurants like I have. And I find myself doing a lot of like explaining to people, hey, actually, like it works this way in the grocery store. Like we can't actually make that change. That's not really in the hands of the government. That's going to happen on this side of things. So do you have any thoughts about that? Like now you're not only a small business owner who's selling to grocery stores and of a variety of levels, right? You do from everything from mom and pop cafe to giant, right? And Whole Foods. Um, but, you know, also thinking about like how we can improve stores and maybe even like how policy could be used to influence the healthy improvements to the grocery experience as someone who's worked in the grocery area, selling to them and working with them. Do you have any insight that could be useful to policy leaders when it comes to those changes that need to happen? The biggest change I would say I want to see is overall transparency, right? There's been this movement in the industry where you can throw a blanket term on your label mm -hmm. and it's accepted as an ingredient. Mm -hmm. Like to me, the idea of artificial flavors, organic flavors, natural flavors mm -hmm. is a bunch of BS. Mm -hmm. Like that is not an ingredient. That is not the item you put in the food product. Right. That is what you're listing. So you don't have to list the extreme chemical sounding product you probably put in it. Right. And I really want to see a push where you're requiring people to tell you what's in the food you're eating because mm -hmm. someone can't make an informed decision if they're not being informed. Yes. Yes. That is something I 100% agree with. I totally rebel against the idea that right now, like the food market is what it is because people are just choosing ultra processed foods. I'm like, they're not perfectly informed. So they're not actually able to make that choice. Like we're not teaching nutrition in schools. We're not teaching label reading 101. We're not educating people truly. Like I just saw an article that came out and it was like a study. Um, Dr. Robert Lustig shared it on LinkedIn. And it said consumers want to avoid ultra processed foods, but they don't know what they are. Ah, <laughs> yes. I mean, I want to avoid breathing in carcinogens constantly, but I mean, I don't smoke cigarettes, but I do leave my house, right? Like we're all kind of in this soup of pollutant chaos, but at least when it comes to eating, you have to put it in your mouth, right? But when we aren't even giving consumers enough information that they even know what an ultra processed food is... And then, like you're saying, even among some of the healthier options, there are still these nebulous ingredients. Um, some of the stabilizers have been shown and the like, uh, what's the word that I'm searching for? Like the things that homogenize the the foods and yeah. keep them in suspension. Like preservatives. So, yeah, like the preservatives and the, um, like the lecithins and those kinds of products. Those things don't always have positive health outcomes, but they still get that slap of, you know, generally recognized as safe. What does that mean? And for how long? And how many studies have really been done? Or did we just like slap that label on in the 50s and we're just cruising with it now? And there's not a lot of long term studies that go into new food ingredients that we, we start using. I mean, right. one that I think about a lot is, is stevia. Yeah. Right. Like you find stevia and everything. I'm not a stevia guy, but you you don't know how that'll affect you long term. Right. You don't know what the outcome of that over generations 
right. generations is. And I think a lot of the problem comes from these really large food conglomerates and food brands driving the sequence of events. So let's just take our industry in kombucha, right? They saw kombucha starting to take off, and then you started seeing these shelf-stable kombuchas. Right. If it's shelf-stable, it's not kombucha. Right. And it's because that sequence of, okay, this product's good. People want it. Now, how do I make it last 10 years on a shelf so I don't have to worry about it ever expiring? Yeah. And people need to accept that if you want fresh, healthy food, it has an expiration date on it. Yeah. A hundred percent agree. One of the products that I've been thinking about recently, because I spend most of my free time thinking about the gut microbiome and thinking about the interactions between what we eat and the gut microbiome. And I notice in a lot of foods, including, you know, quote unquote, healthier foods, including some things that I own in my fridge right now, one ingredient is modified food starch. So first of all, Modified how? You know, I'm not perfectly informed on that process. But what I do know is that my gut microbiome within my own system is responsible for doing a lot of modification to starches. And in doing so, it's transforming those starches, those fibers into metabolites that are then feeding my brain and my immune system and producing short-chain fatty acids to nourish the lining of my intestines and producing metabolites that are going right up into my brain and becoming neurotransmitters. So when we have a starch that maybe historically would have been quote-unquote modified by the gut microbiome, but it's coming in pre-modified, I'm assuming enzymatically or something along those lines, do we know the downstream impact of that pre-modification on the metabolites that are then going to be produced by the gut biome. And I think that's one of the many things that isn't factored into when we deem a ingredient safe. Right. Right. All we're looking at is, is this poisonous to me right. in some way? Check a box, yes or no. Right. Just because it's not poisonous doesn't mean it's good for you. It just means right. it's not horrible for you. So Yeah, and just because something isn't causing cancer within a one-year timeline doesn't mean there aren't long-term negative outcomes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, this is definitely where I think there's so much growth that needs to happen. And also, like, let's talk about – well. During that discussion, I was thinking about how we lost our way when it came to food, when people started thinking about, you know, your body is a is a car and calories are the fuel and this whole calories in, calories out, this idea that you, you know, pour fuel into your body and all food is fuel and then it gets burned up in there like I'm some incinerator and then whatever, magically everything comes out or it's just over or it becomes fat and that's the whole story when really it's so much more complicated than that. And of course, the nutrients that you're consuming impact how many calories you burn and impact whether or not your immune system and metabolism and endocrine system are functioning at all. But recently, uh, Georgetown actually, where I attended, came out with a published study on the benefits of kombucha. Shout out to Kraft Kombucha, although Very they cool. have a new name now. They're no longer called Kraft, but it's a local D.C. brand. Yeah, yeah, I've had their stuff before. Yeah, Tanya, right? Yeah. And so they worked. They provided the kombucha to Georgetown, and they studied the impact on postprandial blood glucose in type 2 diabetics, so people who mm -hmm. already had type 2 diabetes. And they saw over the period of the study, I forget the time period right now, that they had a lower glycemic response to food overall when they were consuming kombucha. So in theory, when you have a kombucha with your meal, you are consuming more calories, quote unquote. I'm doing air quotes for those listening only and not watching, which is most of you. Um, and also... There is some sugar, right, because kombucha yes. is produced using organic, hopefully, cane sugar. And yet, someone with type 2 diabetes who you think would, in theory, sort of blanket, benefit from fewer calories and no sugar, they saw better outcomes to their blood glucose. So I think, like, that's an amazing study, first of all. Thank you, Georgetown. Thank you, Kraft. Thank you, Tanya. But also an amazing just concept to kind of reframe us on what food is doing in the body. It's not just going in there and getting burned, right? Yeah. There's something more complicated happening. And I think it's about everything in moderation, right? As a society, we love to be like, 
I'm on the carnivore diet, no vegetables. You know, I think it, your body needs everything in moderation. And yeah. one of those things we do need is sugar, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's from an, a natural source, ideally or not, our bodies do need sugar. And what, the way I like to think about the body is not like a car. It's like a house that you have to live in and maintain for 90 years. So treat it accordingly. Yeah. You hear that, millennials? Homeownership. <laughs> a pipe dream. But we're going to focus that metaphor. We're going to build our homes, starting with our guts and working our way out. I really do think when I consume kombucha, I almost feel like I'm training my gut to metabolize sugar. Because look what kombucha does, right? Mm -hmm. You dump a bunch of cane sugar into this and it chews it up and it produces healthy organic acids. I would love for my gut to do the same thing. So when I put sugar into my body, I'm hoping that there's somebody in there who moved in when I drank kombucha, you know, just started her day coming in from the kombucha, but then hopefully she sticks around in there. And then if I want to have a treat and I eat a little bit of sugar, hopefully then there's someone on board inside of me who's ready to transform that sugar into something healthy and beneficial as opposed to just like letting it get gobbled up by pathogens or something that might shift my immune system in a negative direction. And that's why we call it the biome, right? There's an entire ecology to the inside of your body that exists. And it's important to acknowledge that. And a lot of these processed foods like white flour or um, antibiotics strip us of these important bacteria that help us digest food and process it exactly like you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very familiar with that. I had a long childhood full of antibiotics, which it drove my entire passion for gut health and learning about the microbiome. So no regrets, but there was a lot of personal learning along the way, and I'm very grateful. It's been super exciting over the last decade plus to just see how much consumer knowledge and public knowledge and policy knowledge has shifted around the role of the gut and of food. I actually got an invite today to you know, the Department of Health and Human Services is having a food as medicine symposium. That's awesome. How exciting is that, right? Like, that is something that I think, when I was in high school, somebody asked me, like, whatever, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, this might sound totally crazy, but I have this, like, dream that I could be a psychiatrist who only treats her patients with food. And this person, like, laughed me out of the room. They were like, you'd be arrested. Like, if you try (laughs) to treat people with, like, mental health issues with food, like, you'd be disbarred or whatever, like, thrown in jail. And I was like, yeah, you're probably right. Well, today, like, Harvard has these people who are top of the industry and they're psychiatrists who are treating their patients 100% with food. What a dream, right? Like Like a literal pipe dream. And our world is far from perfect and there are many problems. But in some areas, we do begin to tiptoe closer to sanity. And I'm hoping that this is one of those areas where we begin to see, as you just said, like it is a house we have to live in for 90, maybe even 120 years if we're lucky, right? And it is a biome. It is a community. And we have to nurture it and not just view it as this like machine that we're like just pushing down the road with gasoline and burning it. Yeah, we've we've overcomplicated life on this earth as humans in general. Yeah. And the way I like to think about it when it comes to food and educating people on what I would put in my body and what I wouldn't is when I look at the shelf in a grocery store, and there's an item. I simply ask myself, if I made this at home, would it have to be in the fridge or not? And if it would have to be in the fridge, but it's not on the shelf there, they did something to it. <laughs> that is a really good rule of thumb. I like that. I like that a lot. There are so many foods. My mom yesterday was talking because I bake bread at home. I'm gluten-free. I bake a gluten-free sourdough bread every day. And by the way, you do really have to bake every day when you're making sourdough because the culture, that's her cycle. She's a 24-hour girl. Another self-propagating culture. Exactly. In fact, I'm going to double her today and, and adopt her out to a friend. But our bread, it's fresh. It's delicious. It's made fresh every day. Um, and, and probably in three days, it would mold, right? Yes. Like, And I don't want to put it in the fridge. And luckily, we consume about a loaf a day. So we're good. It's not going bad. But it really strikes me that you go to the grocery store, even the Whole Foods, you know, even the fresh looking things that seem healthier than maybe some other options. And they're in a plastic bag and they're on the shelf. Who knows how long it's been since they left the bakery, 
and they're expected to be on the shelf for at least a week. I mean, they're they're doing something, even if it's not, you know, totally nefarious. Something is being done that I can say from baking bread at home is not happening with home home fresh bread. Yeah, 100%. And at the end of the day, you know, because it's not in the grocery store's best interest to throw away food because it went bad. Right. So they're incentivized also to get food that has more, you know, preservatives and things like that in it. And really only the consumer demand pushing them away from that will change it. Right. Or policy changes, you know, maybe a little bit of both. Educate the consumer, make the policy shifts, happen at the same time. We'll see. Well, it's good. Do you ever, like, as a business owner working in natural foods, do you ever spend any time doing, like, sort of big picture education for people working on the grocery side of things to kind of help them understand how things could change to improve the health of the population? Or do you ever talk to policymakers at all? I wish I had the time to do that. But as we know, the truth with small business is often we're the people without the time to lobby. And the big businesses are the businesses with the personnel, with the time to lobby. And that's also why they typically inform what tends to happen in the industry, which is why I, I do think, you know, demand and consumer drive is the main thing that'll change that because, if those big companies start to feel it on their on their top lines, they'll start to make changes. Yeah. Well, this is also why I'm passionate about sneaking into these rooms, right? Like, I'm like, they don't know that I'm like a former restaurant owner and like grocery girl and natural food industry sales rep. And now I'm like in these rooms with policymakers. So hopefully from the inside, I can help to nudge and whisper in people's ears and even just putting out this podcast, right? Like broadly speaking, this is an education platform and I'm hoping to show more people um, how food and the microbiome and natural food businesses can be used to make the world a healthier and happier place. Because gosh darn it, I have three kids and I'm not willing to let this ship go down. And now you brought a baby onto this planet, so you got to help me fix it too. I completely agree. And I've definitely had that thought in the last, you know, the last few days that he's he's been born. Um, and I think there has to be a change and it's going to be driven in people's households also, right? Mm-hmm. As these policymakers are in their own house and their kid says, dad, I don't eat that. That's super processed. That's bad for you. You know, he'll stop eating it too and hopefully drive change at the policy level. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. I, I do think that it really does require like individuals to kind of see how these small changes have a huge ripple effect in themselves. And then look around them and see how many structural things are in place that are making it difficult for the average person to access those changes. Because I've been passionate for years about shifting my own personal health, right? I changed my diet the first time when I was like 14, saw a huge shift in my life, right? And then I had my first daughter when I was 19, and I totally changed the way I ate and cooked and lived then. And at the time, I would have said, Changing your life through food is a 100% a personal decision. You just get up and you make that choice. And of course, that is an important part of it. But as I got older and as I began to just look at the world around me a bit more, you know, come out of my teenager narcissism that we all go through. And then, of course, when I went back to school and studied public health, I just saw how for the average person, the structure isn't there to support those choices. In fact, the structure is pushing the opposite. It's making it much easier to reach for, oh, like soda is on sale. It's cheaper than water. Oh, chips are on sale. That's really satisfying and crunchy and salty and it's really inexpensive. Like why would I waste money on almonds, which are $8 for this small bag? And so now I'm very passionate about still encouraging consumers to want to sort of see how foods could really shift and impact and benefit their lives but also making those structural changes because we can't wag the finger at the consumer when the structure is set up to make them fail. And the built environment in the grocery store, like you just said, it's like 90% of the store is foods that will harm you. And then there's this little perimeter (laughs) of foods that will heal you. And that's not, that's not the right equation if you want to move society in a healthier direction. And, And I think a lot of it's systemic as well, right? Because If you grew up in a household that ate this way, 
you're much more likely to eat that way, mm -hmm. right? My favorite food in the world is Indian food. I grew up eating Indian food. I don't know how much of that factored into it, yeah. but probably a lot. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of which, have you ever had DC dosa? I have not. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so DC dosa, I first had it at Union Market in, like, you know, deep in DC. But they just opened a location, like, five minutes down the road from here. Ooh. We discovered that my children are addicted to Indian food. Big, big fans. And especially dosa. Just, like, the South Indian, like, rice and lentil crepes stuffed with spicy potato. Oh, I, I love to grab South Indian food. Amazing. Especially because, you know, through and through, I'm North Indian. So that's really the food that I could never get at home because ah. my mom's a great cook, but hate to break it to you, mom. You don't make South Indian food as, <laughs> as well as you make North Indian food. Yeah, of so, course. It's, so it it's go what she knows. Yeah. yeah. South Indian food. I mean, I like it all, but for whatever reason, my children are addicted to dosa. They made me take them there two days in a row and just shoved their faces full of this food. So like kids are funny because they're picky, but they're they're picky for their own weird stuff so like they're like no i don't want that plain chicken like give me the dosa like, yeah. okay fine <laughs> i've done something right it's the kombucha from a young age word to the wise just like slip a little uh little finger in the kombucha into the baby's mouth you know yeah. six months old little yeah. kombucha in there well there will definitely be kombucha accessible to, to our child <laughs> yes for sure. baby's first birthday there's just like bottles of kombucha <laughs> lying everywhere everyone's like hanging out okay so I want to make sure that we talk a little bit about where you are right now in the business and where you're going. Because like we were recently discussing, you added this beverage distribution mm -hmm. angle. You also added the mate beverage even before that in addition. To, and the mate is not fermented. It's just like a it is sparkling though, right? Correct. It's, it's sparkling and shelf stable. Um, and the way we achieve that is by pasteurizing the can post-fill. So we're not adding stabilizers or anything like that. Oh, nice. And is it force carbonated? The mate is, yes. Yeah, yeah. with just uh, carbon dioxide or do you use like soda mix or whatever it's no, called? No, just, just CO2. Nice, yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, by the way, mate is amazing. Like another beverage that's kind of, you guys are just choosing that the like the lane of like we serve beverages that we might have to educate you on. So uh, do you want to tell the listeners very briefly what mate is and, and why you chose it? Yeah, so so yerba mate is it's brewed just like an herbal tea. Um, it comes from the leaves of a holly plant that grows at elevation in South America, and it's a little bit richer in caffeine, antioxidants, and anti-inflammatory saponins. Yeah, mate is so good. Like it's it's a very like different sort of caffeine feeling than coffee. Yes, my experience of it is it's like lighter. Headier, mm -hmm. you know, not to get weird, but it just has like a more like lifted, elevated, lighter feeling to it. Definitely. I enjoy it a lot. And for us, we bring products to market that we enjoy. Yeah. And for me, as someone who's not a coffee drinker, um, I love having a mate to get that boost of energy because I can still go to bed at night. Mm -hmm. If I drink a coffee, I will be up all hours of the day and night yeah. just because, you know, I never really got into that coffee culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you have the kombucha, you have the mate, you're distributing beverages. What's next for you guys? I know that right now you're doing a fundraise. So do you want to talk me through that a little bit? Like what's going on? What are you looking to do? And... Where are you hoping to go in the next, I don't know, five years, 10 years? We've always preached controlled growth, right? We've grown our brand outwards in concentric circles since day one. And this fundraise is really all about continuing to do that. Um, as you grow larger, you know, more capital is required to get to that next level or enter that next city. And for us, this capital will be used to bulk up on our inventory on the distribution side, grow our sales team a bit, and the plan at towards the end of this year is to enter the Philadelphia market. Oh, nice. Which is just a hop, skip, and a jump away, really. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. We're, not, we're not all of a sudden shipping bottles to Seattle or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, awesome. That's really good to know. I want to kind of bring it home because when I was thinking about, you know, I was reading up on your background, studying environmental science, it's obvious that you're passionate about that and wanting to, like, restore this region's environment, but also preserve the future of the earth, I think is pretty, pretty clear to say. And um, I do know that because you're running a successful business, 
you're able to do that, right? Again, it's the sweet spot of, yes, there are environmental trade-offs. You're driving vehicles that burn fossil fuels to Mm -hmm. deliver beverages, but you're also able to use the money from the sales to support environmental causes. So I would just love to hear, you know, why that's so important to you and, and maybe what you hope to do in the future. Like, do you have any specific goals when it comes to supporting the local and regional environment. Um, Obviously, you have this sustained goal of giving back to the Bay Foundation, but anything beyond that and like more targeted? I think it comes down to, you know, the simple phrase of leave the earth better than you found it. You know, it's, it's a very, very simple phrase, but if we all did it in practice, we may be in a better place. Yeah. And for me the easiest way to do that is in your immediate environment. You know, it's a lot harder to look at it and more daunting to look at it from a global scale. You know, I might not be able to impact the overall temperature of the ocean, but I can take my time to go pick up trash or plant trees in our local environment. So for me, it's about continuing to spread how important that work is, physically do that work myself because you got to practice what you preach, and then just continuing to grow our brand, which then allows us to give back. I I don't really have a long-term plan in terms of that. I do know at some point in my career down the road, I do want to get back to those roots in the environmental field, whether it's on an entrepreneurial side or, you know, a nonprofit. Um, But for now, it's really just continuing to grow the brands to have as large of an impact as possible. Awesome. Well, great job. I think so far so good. You're doing really good work there. And it's just been really awesome to talk to you because I think that something that I'm very passionate about is this intersection between, you know, walking the winding path through life and sort of thinking we know where we're going and then ending up somewhere totally different Um, But how much of a positive impact we can have and how much fulfillment we can find when we leave space for that journey. And I think that the journey that you're on is a great representation of that because, you know, studying environmental science, friend calls you, says, let's brew some kombucha, man. And now you're kind of able to do both. So I personally, I mean, I love the product and I love the company. So I'm a fan. Um, But I'm also just very excited to see where you guys go and and where you grow. And I'll be uh, in the halls of of the government trying to push for beneficial policy shifts all along the way. And between your work and my work, maybe our children will have a grocery store that has much healthier options and many fewer additives. Only fridges and no shelves in that grocery store. Only fridges. But then we have like a power issue. Like who is powering this refrigeration? We're going to need like solar generators in every parking lot to help power the refrigeration. Yeah, it'll be located just just right next to a dam and that'll that'll power our grocery store. But yeah, it's it's been an incredible journey. I'm excited to see where we continue to go. Um, For us, I think anyone who starts a business... You don't really know where you're going. If you look back at your projections from day one, it's probably very different than where you are. And we're just trying to enjoy it along the way and see where we can take it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come down here and speak with me today. And thank you also to your wife for letting you leave the house because (laughs) leaving the house when there's a new baby is no small task. So many thanks to both of you. And, you know, I hope that we circle back in, uh, in a couple years and see how things are going. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Should we crack a kombucha? Do you, it's the right thing do to you do. get high on your own supply? Uh, yes. All right. Sweet. Yes. Let's do it. Cheers. Which flavor do you have there? I have the ginger. Mm. Yeah. Love the elderberry. It's so good. And as someone who doesn't drink, I love the beer bottle shape because yeah. I, I feel fun. You yeah. know, like you are fun. I am fun. You are fun. I am fun. Who needs anything in a beer bottle except for <laughs> kombucha? 
Thank you once again for listening to the Marion Flaxman Network Podcast, a podcast dedicated to reintroducing personal narratives into critical public health topics. For more information on me, Marion, please visit my website at marionflaxman.com. For more information on my guest and his company, Wild Bay Kombucha, please find the links in the show notes. This episode was produced by Brain Trust Productions and sponsored by Informed Solutions Consulting. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time.